Rightio. Welcome back to History Files. Thanks for coming on the podcast, boys. Yeah. Thank you, Simon. What are your name? My name is Felix. Taj. Felix Taj. We're going to be talking about the war in the Pacific today. Each group that we have, because we've got three groups coming in, you guys are going to be looking at the Battle of the Coral Sea and then looking at, is the Battle of the Coral Sea the turning point in the Second World War in the Pacific Theatre? But before we jump into that, we're going to start with a bit of a game. So what I have here, <laughs> yeah, the game is going to be focused on aircraft carriers. So I've got five aircraft carrier names and two of them are fake. And you have to guess which ones are fake. So I'm going to give you the five. And if you're listening or watching at home, you can play along too. So Yorktown, Akagi, Phantom, Tatsuhami, and Enterprise. Yorktown's true. Yorktown? I do know that one's true. But I'm going to assume the one that you struggle to pronounce is true. I don't think Phantom's real. No. Doesn't sound American enough. Or mm-hmm. what was that? Those his. Uh, the other one, so it was Phantom, Enterprise, Akagi, Yorktown, and Tatsu Army. That one's true, I think. Okay, so tell me, your two Felix, which one you think I think? The Tatsu one and Enterprise. So you think that one and Enterprise are the fake ones? Taj? I think Phantom and the Tatsu one is fake. Taj, you are the winner. Very good, mate. Uh, Enterprise is probably one of the most famous aircraft carriers and the inspiration for the ship in Star Trek as well, USS Enterprise. Anyway, let's get into the Battle of the Coral Sea. So set it up, give me the lead up for the Battle of the Coral Sea, maybe starting with a date. When is this taking place? May the 4th to maybe 8th. That's like the time scale, which all the... 1942. Yep. Right here. Keep going. Flesh this out a bit for someone who has no idea what's happening. Well, Japan's kind of like gone around everywhere, just like invading like all the different countries. Like, so it's invaded the Philippines, yeah. Malaysia or Maya, um, China, Singapore, Singapore. Mm. So it's gone on a bit of a rampage, like just, just like conquering everything. Um, post Pearl Harbor. Yeah, post Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Um, what else? Java. Java. Which is in, in Dutch East Indies. Yeah. So want that oil. <laughs> Who wants that oil? Japanese. The Japanese. Okay, so the Japanese are motivated to find resources. They've been on a bit of a six-month tear through the Pacific, unchecked because the Americans have had the soccer punch, which is Pearl Harbor. And... The Coral Sea, what's important about this engagement or what has been the lead up for this engagement taking place? Well, the Japanese have always kind of been on a, like, southward thrust. They plan on cutting Australia off from the Americans to prevent it from ever being, like, a launching pad. So they want to isolate Australia by cutting off, like, the islands and stuff and the waterways between America and Australia, Mm -hmm. which will include the invasion of... The Solomon Islands and Port Moresby right. in Papua New Guinea. And why are the Japanese, uh, I guess, choosing to continue to be... Like, you said that they want to stop Australia to be a launching point. One of the things that I think that maybe the listener is wanting to consider is, at, is at this point, 
the Japanese pushing too far into the Pacific? Are they overextending themselves? Yeah. Okay, explain that a little bit. Well, like, it's kind of obvious from, like, the events of Midway that it wasn't a good idea because they failed, like, in hindsight. But, like, like it was a good idea from their perspective because they wanted to consolidate, like, their power in the South Pacific by invading Tulagi and, like, um, Port Moresby. Mm-hmm. So they'd be, like, dominating the entire South Pacific. They want to neuter the threat of Australia as yeah. an avenue for a counterattack. Yeah. Like, in hindsight, it's obvious that they overextended because they lost a pivotal battle, so. And what's feeding into, I guess, their anxiety to, to spread and to, like, they're also looking for the carrier fleet as well, aren't they? So what is the reason, or I guess the trigger? Has the Americans done anything? Uh, the Doolittle Rain. Oh, yeah, we're <laughs> about the Doolittle Rain. Okay, let's keep going with that. So um, after the uh, attack and bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Americans set up basically like a publicity stunt of we're going to send the aircraft carrier and we're going to bomb Tokyo. We don't really think it's going to do much, but it scares the shit out of the Japanese. Yeah, it annoyed them a little bit. Yep. So yeah, a little bit angry when they fought up this plan. Yeah, because the bomb lands in the Imperial Palace grounds and what would have happened to the entire Japanese command if that bomb had, I don't know, connected with a living god, which is the Emperor. Blown it. Well, you think it blown it slightly happened to them. It would have dismantled it and made a lot of chaos and, like, unorganized. It would have been a big hindrance. Mm. Mass ritual suicide. That's what I'm... Oh! <laughs> Why did they know that? So... Oh, there you go. We're learning stuff on the podcast. So they would have all killed themselves. Yeah, well, per, like, Bushido Code and, like, they're only one, I think maybe only one generation or two generations removed from what would have been still an existing, like, samurai class. Yeah. They all got their granddad's samurai swords. Yeah, and that honor and that really strong belief. So if your commander dies, you the only way you redeem your honor is through seppuku which is ritual sacrifice. So that would have, imagine the war in the Pacific if one of those bombs from the Doolittle Raid just took out that one person, Tojo and his whole band, there would have been the pressure of the whole country being like, kill yourself. <laughs> you got to stab yourself in the gut, like spill out your guts everywhere. Anyway, so that's why they're searching, I guess, you know, they carry a flea along with all the other, I guess, strategic reasons that you talked about before so they're coming together yeah they meet in the coral sea the japanese the americans australian fleet or well, australia hasn't got much of a fleet but they're there supporting what happens in the battle well first the japanese they split up their forces they got three aircraft carriers in the side mm-hmm. two of them are going around the solomon islands which along with that they're going to take them and they're going to take Toluca, the island of toluca so they can get up an air base to act as like a uh, to block like any flank against them from the east and then there's another aircraft carrier going like in the more westward and there's a convoy of Japanese soldiers who are going to head through the kind of what it's called something straight through Papua New Guinea like off the coast of Papua New Guinea to get to Port Moresby yeah so that's happening and then the Americans find like they decipher the Japanese code on like their plans to do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they intelligence. They set up their own kind of thing. They 
link up the two aircraft carriers that were available. I think some of them weren't available since they were busy off the Doolittle Raid. Yeah, would have been too far away. Uh, what were some of the US aircraft carriers that were present? Yorktown, Lexington. Okay, so we got elected. So what was the, I guess, um, like, did these two fleets actually meet? The conflict? No. So it was mainly fought, like, through planes being launched from each each fleet and then trying to find each other. Yeah. But they didn't really, like, that. it was, like, the first naval fleet, like, naval battle in history where two, like, big ships didn't spot each other visually and only fought through, like, proxy. Which probably leads to the Japanese false assessment of the U.S. strength yeah. post the battle. Because what is the Japanese assessment post the Battle of the Coral Sea? That they're very weak. Yep. Because they sink Lexington, I think, for a reef, and Yorktown is heavily damaged, I think. Yeah. And they write it off, pretty much. This like, Yorktown's, you know, so heavily damaged that it's not going to make it into any conflict or any sort of battle within, I don't know, the next year or six months at best. So we know that that battle has happened. Well, what's important about it? It doesn't seem very important, especially if you haven't got the, the better context. Well, is it a victory? It's, it's a victory what? in the sense that they didn't get, um, well, they lost, like Americans lost, the Americans lost like a significant number of aircraft and like ships, like well, a ship forward. And then, but like the Japanese didn't get to secure their position in Tulangi and in Papua New Guinea, so they lost like a strategic point, which they were aiming for, so they failed as well. Yeah. That does remind me that um, after the Battle of the Coral Sea, they abandoned the idea of a naval assault to take uh, Port Moresby, and they instead pivoted towards trying to go overland through the jungle to try and get to Port Moresby, which was pretty hard. Which is going to lead to the Kokoda Kokoda track. Um, Just wondering if there was anything else that we needed to touch on for this particular one. So we've talked about the lead up for the Coral Sea. Signals intelligence is the bit of a game break, yeah, bit of a game changer. The battle is mostly fought with air units. The Japanese think that they have, you know, like their thrust has stopped. That in itself is a big deal. So they're not unchecked anymore. This is the first time that that's happened. But they think that they've gotten a better result than what comes to pass. And then that's going to lead them to then make a mistake on a mistake when they get into the Battle of Midway, when they think that Yorktown's not going to be there. And miraculously, it does make it there. But we'll save that for the other crew. Do you have a strong argument or do you think that the Coral Sea is the turning point for the war in the Pacific or are you leaning towards another group? I think that the Midway was the total turning point, but like it was definitely like a build up into Midway being losing for Japan. Yep. Yeah, I think the Coral Sea was pretty important given that there was a lot of opportunity that perhaps like all the American aircraft carriers could have gone destroyed, which would have crippled the American rhythm reigning aircraft carriers that they were going to have in midway. Yeah, probably are. Well, thank you, boys. Thanks for coming on for part one of our discussions and greeting the next group. No worries. Okay, boys, we're here for part two. This is, to be honest, this is the most important one. Battle of Midway for the turning point. 
Oh, you gotta leave him hanging like that. It's not audio only anymore. <laughs> Here is a sheet of some Google reviews. So what I have done is I've gone onto Google reviews and there is a memorial <laughs> at Midway where people can go and they can honor the honor, you know, the fallen that are there. And I have found some fantastic reviews of people that you know, weren't fully thrilled with the memorial that they flew out to see or couldn't fly out to see. So can you just read those out? So we have the first one by Seta Tempio, and he says, if you want to see loads of burbs, come here. Why so many burbs? <laughs> burbs everywhere. How many likes did they get? Four. Four. A solid four. Burbs. By uh, Rhina Cement. Uh, <laughs> had a nice holiday. Hashtag, what do you want Greta? Five stars. So my question is, is who's greater? No, I reckon it's his wife. <laughs> and then the last one is, how do you get, how, how to get here? Of course, I know it's by plane. I mean, where to get thickets to this small island. Yeah, where do you get thickets? <laughs> it's a good bit. How do you, how do you think you do get there? How do you get to Midway? You don't have to be right. Wait, you just guess. Hey, where are the thickets? Anyway, they don't know where the thickets are, but they do know some stuff about Midway. So take us into the lead-up. You don't have to rehash the Battle of the Coral Sea because we just listened to Felix and Taj. Oh, and I should introduce so that we've got... Who's who's who? Uh, Darcy. And PJ. Rightio. So lead us into the Battle of Midway. So the Battle of Midway started about three months prior with the Doolittle Raid, which is basically a big publicity stunt essentially but it like stroke struck fear in Yamamoto's heart and like made him a lot more nervous that the US was a lot stronger than they thought mm -hmm. um yeah so it's like this brought fear into Yamamoto's heart which sort of set him on this path of we need to do something about the Americans like we've had this streak of victories and we want to keep that so yeah we go into the battle of midway would you like to do the code briefing? Yep. So a man named Joseph Rochefort and his team, they broke the Japanese Navy's uh, JN25B code. And they basically determined that AF stood for Midway. However, they didn't really have the full support of Admiral Nimitz. And this is where Peter Um So Captain Wilfred Holmes um, devised this little plan to confirm if it was Midway. So they sent out like uncoded messages from Midway saying their water systems were down and like they just send them everywhere um which was reciprocated with Japanese codes saying AF was low in water and they picked that up within 24 hours confirming that this was Midway yeah so they were able to set a trap for the Japanese they made it quite an easy trap you know sending it out unencrypted as well that's probably again another mistake on the Japanese um on the Japanese part. So they now have the evidence. So Nimitz is now a little bit more interested in AF being a target. So what happens next? Well, that's where um, Nimitz was able to decipher that the attack would be the 4th or 5th of June. He didn't have an exact date, but he had those two days um, in mind. But the um, Japanese had basically no idea about this knowledge as well. They had no idea that how strong the Americans were at this point. Yeah. They were a lot more um, 
yeah, like this is where the scale started to tip towards the Americans because they had no really idea of um, the strength of the Americans. Are you talking about in regards to like them them being there or the number of aircraft carriers? Um, them being there. They're, they're, so yeah, yeah, because the Japanese they 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 think they're laying like this master stroke, highly coordinated trap, but then the Americans are gonna throw a spanner in the works because they they know it's going to be there and they know it's going to happen and i'm pretty sure they didn't have as strong as a navy as well at that point they had three um aircraft carriers compared to was it four yeah japan had four the u.s had two good carriers and then the yorktown which was like really damaged in pearl harbor so the oh and coral sea oh coral sea sorry yeah it made it back to pearl harbor yeah yeah so the um like technicians were given, well, they wanted three to six months to repair the Yorktown and have it a functioning vessel. Um, and then Obad gave them three days. So they had it barely running, but it was functional. Yeah. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. Imagine going in to get your car serviced. <laughs> just like, that'll be six months to pick days. Like, you had three days. It's just like full straight face. So they, the Americans are going to be there. And that's going to throw off the Japanese and they've got an extra aircraft carrier and they're not going to lose the island airfield. So let's go into the course of the battle. Let's maybe start with the Japanese still thinking that it's going to, that they've got the drop on them. So the Japanese are showing up. So they um, arrive at Midway. They think like all the planes are going to be on the island. There's only two carriers and like they've got the upper hand right now. They're just going to rock up, attack them. They had all their... Um, planes set for, like, um, land-based attacks, mm-hmm. um, which is a bit of a process to change, which comes up later. This is, so they weren't land-based, so yeah, were they? It was about half and a half. Oh, okay. They're like, yeah, half of your fleet for that. Not exactly half. Let's be honest, we don't know. <laughs> there was an amount that they had, and it was sectioned off. The, some of them were for torpedoes, but because they think the Americans are going to be, like, three, four days away, it's just like, well... We don't really need the torpedoes just yet. And the switchover takes two hours? Yeah, two, two hours. So they're not worried about it until they are. Yeah. With then, so after that, about 30 minutes after they started switching all the uh, torpedoes and stuff, the US ships um, like started to uh, approach the island. And that's when basically Onigumi just got really scared. But because he's very um, like strict to the doctrine and everything, it's... I can't remember what the saying was, but like, don't attack unless you're fully ready. That's pretty much yeah the crux. Um, which meant he started switching like everything back to what they were before, which basically just had everyone just confused. There was bombs everywhere. No one was putting stuff back. So they just you know, took it out. Yeah, and that just basically led to Nagumi's um, downfall, really. Well, the carrier fleets are just like floating yeah. to boxes yeah. currently at the moment while they're switching, and they and he's not responding in a he can't counter attack. So basically, at this point, what you're telling me is that Nagumo thinks he's going to have the surprise attack. He doesn't have the surprise attack. He panics and he switches himself into like a wrong-footed decision. And then he discovers that the Americans are actually right here, right now. And he's just wide open for like like a haymaker. Yeah. Do the Americans pull it off? (laughs) This is where they fumble the bag and they send in their planes with a 90% failure rate. And they're just these horrible planes that cannot shoot. So of 46 of them, of the planes, only four didn't get shot down. Yeah. So it's a massacre for the Americans. Like, they have no air support. When you're saying that 
the firing rate. You're talking about the torpedoes, yeah. Yeah. The torpedoes are, are rubbish, and the Americans are terrible at logistics at this stage. And, but there are other planes in the air, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Where are they? Uh, <laughs> lost. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's the lost American planes, and they're found um, alone, and a Jap um, naval ship from... So, they're lost. They've got a map and a compass. Yeah. They don't know what's going on. Yeah, and they're dived on the planes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, with sheer luck, they find this little rainbow amongst the, um, like, just flat blue sea, which is coming from a water spout from a single um, Japanese ship, mm-hmm. which they're able to... And they're low on fuel. So, it's either go for this or just fail. Yeah. So, they follow this um, one ship to the fleet. Yeah. Like, in five minutes, the whole battle turns from... Because at the same time, like, Nugumo is getting to the end of his turnaround, where he's just like, well, that was that could have been terrible. The Americans could have wiped me out, but they're totally incompetent, and they're just switching. And imagine the tension of, like, Nugumo's just about to crumb yeah. the Americans. I think as well, that's what... I can't remember, I read something as well, where I was talking about how he got, like, a lot more confidence purely because of how bad they were at the start. Yeah. And that, like, led to the downfall again yeah and so the dive bombers arrive and then what happens after that oh so this is where the the destruction the massacre of the japanese happens so like because of all the mess that was left from the ships like switchovers there's bombs and everything just laying on the ships so it doesn't take much for them to be completely exploded from attacks right and then what's the final result how many units does the japanese Naval force lose in this So they lost um, four carrier ships, 330 aircrafts, and I couldn't get an exact number, but like a lot of generals and pilots just experienced as well that just turned the favours against them. Yeah. So when we were talking about Coral Sea before with the previous group, that was kind of a draw that the Japanese, their plans, they weren't able to go through with them. This is a clear... Clear-cut, decisive victory for the Americans and the first one of many to come. Yeah. So do you think that that makes it the turning point? Yes. Yeah, pretty much. It's just like the Japanese had six months of just victories and like this winning spree Mm. and the US has finally stopped in their tracks. Right, yeah. Any final thoughts? Um, Not really, other than, yeah, just the fact that it was the first significant naval victory, so it tips the scales and it took away like japan's like irregular aggressive strategies from them now that they were like pushed onto the back foot they had to retreat out of fiji out of new caledonia um and other like southeast asian countries so it was like the first time that they were pushed into this defensive position which then also like changed the morale for the u.s yeah that's another big one too that morale plays a huge role in what's going to be coming where the allies then start their push. There was like a, I found a newspaper headline and I was like, yeah, US fleet chasing Japs to strike, knockout blow. It was published like a day after mm-hmm. with also like a watermarked corner saying like, remember Pearl Harbor, which just like adds to that. Like, this is our time now, you know, we, we're on the front foot. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Radio, thank you boys. Thank you, Darcy. Thank you, PJ. And now let's go into part three. Okay, we're here for part three. Who am I speaking to? Well, for the listener or the viewer to see. I'm Zach Willing. And I am Will Gibson. Righto, Zach, Will. 
I've got a Google review here. The last ones were, I thought were pretty good. I've got one good one here. I did have three, but we haven't got time to go through them all. This one's probably the best. So Enderson Ridge Monument, you can go out and walk to it in at Quo Canal, which is in the Solomon Islands, um, just outside Henderson Airfield, which I'm sure you guys are going to talk about as a, like a primary target. This was what Michael Maxwell, who's left nine reviews in the past, said four years ago about his trip to Henderson Airfield. An iconic site was there in June. Big red flag about the relics. You can't take the part unless you have a permit from the National Museum. They probably want money. Because there's national heritage, nobody told me, and I had my bullets confiscated, the airport are a pack of thieves. Morons. They let other things go. Do you think Michael was robbed? Should he, should he have been allowed to take some bullets from World War II around on this field back home to put on a necklace or something? I mean... Who's using them right now? I mean, I'm sure you could have kept them. Yeah. So maybe the airport security, they did take it to sell on eBay. Oh, yeah, they just wanted it themselves. Exactly. Exactly. But the listener is not here to talk about relics from Henderson Airfield because we're not experts on that. We're the experts on the Coral Sea, on the Coral sea Midway and Guadalcanal. So tell me about the lead up to Guadalcanal. Okay, so by this point, we have already um, had the battles of um, Midway and the Coral, the Battle of the Coral Sea. And so, so far, the Battle of Midway has um, stopped them down just to this point uh, of, um, you know, um, stopping their recovery in um, joining this big lead up of a battle. Yeah, so the, the ships that were earmarked to be a Guadalcanal, a lot of them got wrecked at Midway, is what you're saying. They're, they're not able to recover and come back into this fight. So already Japan's going in with like a, like a hand tied behind its back at Guadalcanal. And then what's the result of that? Results? So the battle. Ship, oh, the result of the battle? Mm. Well, basically the result of the whole battle was America on the allies they won this first major land battle which hasn't happened because america's been on a lot of the losing side but they've had this nice build up of yet battle midway in the coral sea now we're going into the guadalcanal which is in the solomon islands uh sort of near australia northeast of australia <clears throat> this will help like the allies as like a um a checkpoint of sorts help them push up more towards Japan, push the Japanese back out of the uh, the Pacific, which is ideally the goal for this. Yeah, I like the way that you framed it, that it's like it's a checkpoint, that you need to still, even though this is in the Pacific and it's island hopping, you do need to like lock in these physical land bases. Who would have, you know, had the better odds going into Guadalcanal for a purely land, like, based affairs before this battle? Um, I reckon the Japanese probably, because they've been fighting in China for years, and uh, they've got that experience, they're like, they're veterans of war. Mm. Whereas in the Americans coming in, they used to be isolationists. They haven't really taken part in any of the wars. Like, with World War One, they pretty much stayed out of it. Yeah. But now they're being 
dragged in because they got bombed at Pearl Harbor and they have been part of all of this mess. They come in, they're all like fresh. They're young, a lot of young people that haven't seen war. So they're like not experienced and they don't know. Their tactics aren't as like advanced as the Japanese, but they got pure numbers is the thing. They had pure numbers pushing into the Guadalcanal, which has helped them a lot. Yeah. So sheer force of numbers. The fact that the Japanese are also, like they got people on the island, but they're not getting supplied. Like they're cut off. That yeah. the Americans have, they're able to have almost like a, a noose put around the island as well. And not a perfect news, obviously, like what you might want to talk about, Will, like the naval engagements. What is it like with the, I guess, the naval uh, units that are setting up around the island? Or what are people seeing from the mainland? I think you were saying you had like a, a newspaper clipping or something from before. Uh, yes. So the eyewitness. Yeah, the eyewitness account. So the, we have a American. African-American uh, who joined up as a boot camp who was pushed into this battle uh, as a one of the heavy cruisers. Uh, and at his post, he could witness quite a lot. Uh, as he says, standing in a lookout position, um, could see faint outlines of ships as they began to slowly appear on the night skyline, immediately recognised that the enemy ships... Uh, looking quite enormous, uh, too large to be cruiser, cru cruisers, while, while appearing to see the enemy approaching in the darkness. American officers apparently were confused about um, what they were seeing, and uh, uh, chaos uh, began as American ships uh Orders began to flow across the intership radio. Uh, the Japan were no better off, uh, having been surprised by the American presence and prepared to bombard shore positions. Yeah, so like there is, there are there's a lot of action going on off the shores of Guadalcanal. That the Americans are getting smashed, the Japanese are getting smashed, but. In the end, it's the Americans that are able to hold it, primarily because of, I guess, the drawbacks of places like Midway, or the battles of Midway. Um, do you have any other accounts from the Battle of Guadalcanal, or maybe any other sort of flavour about what's it like fighting there? They're not fighting in the desert, they're not fighting in, like, the fields of Europe. Like, what's it like there on the island? Well, we didn't have any more accounts because that was Ethan's job. It was supposed to be here. Yeah, Ethan. But, <laughs> but I've got a little info, like, this because Guadalcanal is in the Solomon Islands. This is like a jungleish kind of area. It's like, it's humid, it's hot. It's not what the Americans are used to. It's like, it's, it's sort of like the tropic kind of area, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah, around the equator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much all I got for that because that was Ethan's job. Yeah. Which means that, yeah, sorry, you were going to... I was, I was just going to say it wasn't very steep. It was more a lot of flat ground too, so uh, probably hard for cover and um, a lot of just all rushed sort of attack. Yeah, so just like flat, jungle, hot, malaria, that the Americans are not only fighting the Japanese, who if they capture them will, you know, behead them 
and don't castrate them and do all these other nasty, terrible sorts of things. But like some of the blokes on the island, like their biggest enemy is just not, I guess, becoming a victim of dysentery. So shitting yourself to death, unfortunately, which is a terrible way to go. That That is just one of the big things because the mosquitoes are probably an enemy for everybody on the island, including the Japanese itself. But I think that, like you said, that the, the betting odds would have been for the Japanese because they're the warrior nation. You've got inexperienced boys from Kansas getting chucked into this jungle warfare with the mosquitoes and the malaria and them watching off the coastline, you know, cruisers fight it out every night and not knowing if you're going to be stranded and surrounded. But they managed to pull it together and hang on to the airfield and then throw an umbrella over the island. Is this the turning point more important than Midway that is getting a physical foothold more important than a than a naval victory? Which, yeah, I think it's a bit interesting if we could reflect on that. Well, I think getting the land victory is certainly a very, very important, like, part of the turning point. Because we need to, like, you can't, like, spend a whole time on cruises in the ocean. Like, you need to stop somewhere to be able to, like, push your units forward. Because in the end, you're trying to take over the land. You're not trying to take over, like, all the ocean in areas. Yeah. So you need to have somewhere to set up camp so you can slowly push the Japanese back. But yeah, so I think this was very, very important. It, it like it led to it led to like the Allies going to New Guinea, going to the Central Pacific, and just slowly, slowly but surely pushing the uh, Japanese back. And also, yeah, there was something also it's very important because it stopped the Japanese expansion as well. Because mm. the Japanese they wanted to push out their their numbers were spread thin, like more like they were going everywhere. They were trying to attack China and they were going to Singapore and trying to get back down to Australia as well. But now they've been pushed back. It's like, this is very important for us. Yeah. Like some of the accounts that we looked at in class, like the commanders of the Japanese themselves, when taking Singapore, he says like in his like report notes or his diary that he knows he hasn't got the numerical superiority against the people at Singapore, but the Japanese, they have the initiative and the allies are, are panicking and they're terrified of them. Winning at Guadalcanal, the Americans are not, not going to be terrified of them, but they, they know they can go toe-to-toe with them now. So the Japanese don't get easy victories anymore, that they're going to have to fight for every inch of the Pacific. Radio. Thank you, boys. Thanks for coming on for part three. And thank you, listener, for coming back to History Files. We'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Don't forget to like and subscribe.